0: Log talk radio the B-I-B-L-E yeah, that's the book
1: for me the B-I-B-L-E yeah, that's the book for me
2: I really almost can't and you're seeing truthy toll radio. Gonna get started off right with the lesson and that is the danger of overconfidence. And that's now with John MacArthur.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: This morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I had intended to finish the study of verses 1 to 13, but um, got all wrapped up, and so I don't know where we're going to end. But uh, we'll finish it next time, Lord willing. Talking about 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13... I was being interviewed this week by a young man, and he asked me what was the first thing that I did in preparing a sermon, and I said, the first thing I do is become familiar with the text, read it, reread it, read it again, read it over again, again, maybe 10, 15, sometimes 20 times, just reading and reading and reading and reading until I really have a grip on the text, maybe reading it in various versions, maybe reading it in the Greek, whatever it takes. And the second thing I then do is to determine what the key to the whole passage is. Every passage falls into a unit, and there is a key to that unit, and everything in that unit explains that key concept. And that's what I look for in the study of the Scripture. What is the one key here, and what goes to build to that one key? And as I mentioned to you last time, the key to the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 10 is verse 12. Verse 12 is the, is the point that all of the other verses are trying to establish. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. The danger of overconfidence. When you think you stand, you are the most vulnerable for a fall. That's the idea that Paul is dealing with in these 13 verses, this first paragraph of chapter 10. He shifts a little bit in the next paragraph, beginning at verse 14, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, and goes into another theme. But for this one, it is the theme of the danger of overconfidence. Now, these are not isolated themes as they come in paragraphs in books, but they weave together very well, and yet each one has a distinct identity all its own. Now, the principle of verse 12 is a much-repeated Bible principle. Pride comes before a fall, we saw last time the Proverbs tell us. And so we we need to understand what the whole passage is about. The second thing that we need to do, and this would be the third thing in my procedure and study, would be to determine how this particular paragraph with this particular theme fits into the total of the passage. In other words, the broader context. Why does he discuss this here at the end of chapter 9 and before the rest of the verses of chapter 10? Why does it and how does it fit into this place? And from our last study you'll remember that we told you how it fits in. This discussion in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is a discussion of Christian liberty. And this point is very important in the area of Christian liberty, that the Christian in his freedom not get too overconfident. And that he realize that there are limits that he has to impose on himself even in his liberty. And that's where it fits, and we'll see that as we develop it a little further. Now, the New Testament teaches a lot about Christian liberty, and that's his theme in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of this letter. It teaches a lot about it. Let me just give you the major points that identify Christian liberty. Christian liberty, and uh, I want you to understand what it is, and you will when I'm done, if you don't already. Christian liberty, number one, is granted by God. God gives to the believer freedom. In... Um, John 8, if the Son shall make you free, and it indicates that Christ is the agent of freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. In Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. So you have God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit all tied into the liberty concept. Where does Christian freedom come from? It comes from the Trinity. It comes from God, the Godhead. How is it received? How do you get free? How are you made free? John 8, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be really free. It comes when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 8, 30, many believed on his name. John 8:31 and he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples, and you shall be free. If the Son make you free, you shall be free for real. So, we believe We follow on to believe, and therein is our liberty. So, Christian freedom, then, is granted by God at the time when we receive Jesus Christ. When we put faith in Christ, we are set free. Now, what is this freedom? What does the New Testament say it is? Number one it is freedom from the law. We no longer need to keep ceremonial laws. We no longer are subscribed to ritual and tradition. There is now an internal guideline, the Holy Spirit... No longer external rules and regulations. We don't have to earn the favor of God. We're free from the law as a way to God, as a way to please God, as a way to fulfill God's desires for us. And by that I mean the ceremonial law. Secondly, our freedom is freedom from the curse. The people who break the law are cursed, God says. We're free from that because Christ has paid the curse, right? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, Galatians 3 says, and Christ was cursed for us. He became a curse for us, that we might not be cursed, or condemned, or judged, or damned, or doomed. So our freedom is freedom from the law, that is, from keeping a ritual. It is freedom from the curse, that is, paying the penalty for our own sin. Then it is freedom also in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, from the fear of death. We are free from the fear of death. It says in Hebrews 2.15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ delivers us from the fear of death. And one thing a Christian should have is no fear of death. We may fear the pain, and we may fear the disease and the illness, but not death itself, because that simply ushers us into the presence of God. Another thing the Bible says about our freedom is in Romans 6.7, it says we are free from sin. And what it means is that we are free from the condemnation of sin. Sin cannot require anything of us because its penalty has been paid. It also tells us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, which we studied a few weeks ago, that we are free from all men. And what Paul means is free from the rules and the traditions of men. Free from man-made religious rules. And in Galatians 4, 3 And Colossians 2.20, it says we're free from Jewish ordinances. So, what is our freedom? It's freedom from the law, pleasing God by externals. It's free from the curse, having to pay the, the terrible curse of God for our own sin, because it's already been taken care of. Free from the fear of death. Free from what sin can do to us. Free from human regulations of religion and free from Jewish ordinances. We are free from all of those areas. Paul calls it the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, another thing about it, it not only comes from God, and I define it for you, but another thing about our freedom, it belongs to all Christians. There are not some Christians more free than others. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul says, "...for brethren, you have been called unto liberty." All Christians are called with a view toward freedom, called with a view toward liberty. Now, another thought about it, the New Testament teaches, is in our freedom, we are to hold on to it. Enjoy your freedom, people. Hang on to it. Don't give it up. Don't let anybody circumscribe you to outward ritual. Don't let anybody substitute ritual for reality. Don't let anybody drag you into forms. You hold on to your liberty, and you enjoy your freedom. You say, boy, that's good news. That's right. You say, where'd you get that out of the Bible? Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, it says, or for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand fast and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stay within your liberty. Enjoy your freedom. Galatians 2.4 is a good illustration of it. Paul was always hounded by the Judaizers who wanted him to keep the law and get circumcised and circumcise all the Gentiles and make the Gentiles keep the ceremonies of Moses. So in Galatians 2.4... And that because a false brother and unawares brought in who came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Here came the Judaizers. They were looking over the Gentile Christians and they were spying out their liberty. What that really means is they were looking for weak points in the enemy's position like scouts, you know. They were trying to find where they were abusing liberty or where the liberty wasn't working so they could force them back into bondage. But verse 5, To whom we gave place by subjection? No, not for an hour. We didn't let them take away our liberty. Man, we were free from Jewish ceremonialism, and we weren't about to subscribe to it. Not for an hour did we do that. Why, Paul? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Listen, if you give up your liberty all the time, needlessly giving up your liberty to ritual and form and ceremony and tradition, people will confuse that with the truth of the gospel. If you identify your Christianity by all the things you don't do, then people will think that's what Christianity is. Hold on to your liberty. You say, but wait a minute. When the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem and they told him to go take a Jewish vow, he did it. How come he's willing in one place to keep the ceremony of Moses and he's not willing in another place? That's a fair question. Let me give you the answer. He only gave up his liberty when it was necessary to reach the people he was dealing with. Listen, when the Judaizers tried to hassle Paul to circumcise the Gentiles, he says, forget it. The Gentiles don't even believe in circumcision anyway. That's no problem with them. But when it came to working with the Jews, if circumcision was going to make Timothy better able to work with the Jews, he would circumcise Timothy. You see what the point is? You never give up your liberty needlessly or people confuse the gospel with what you do or don't do. But you will relinquish your liberty when in a society that you're in, it would offend somebody. That's the difference. It's one thing to be a Jew under the Jews. It's something else to turn all the Gentiles into Jews. Paul says, not for a minute. So, your liberty comes from God. God. It is received through the gospel. It is defined as freedom from the law, the curse, and all those things I mentioned. It belongs to all Christians. You're to hold on to it. And one other point. And that's the point that gets us into 1 Corinthians 10. You're not to abuse it. Just because you're holding on to it, and just because you have it, you can't abuse it. Now, here's the tension. On the one hand, see, you're you're holding, I'm holding my liberty. This is my right. On the other hand, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to abuse your liberty. Now, there are two ways to abuse your freedom. I'm going to give you these two. We've covered one. We're covering another one. Here they are. There are two ways to abuse your freedom. Number one, by doing things that offend other people. By doing things that offend other people. And that will vary from culture to culture, year to year, age to age. Paul says, look, if I'm among Jews, yes, I will keep some Mosaic ceremonies. I want to reach them. But if I'm among the Gentiles, man, I'm not going to make them all do the Jewish laws, which they don't even understand anyway. That would just be to relinquish my liberty needlessly and confuse them. So he says in chapter 9, he went into it in great detail. One way to abuse your liberty is to do things that offend others. Say, I'm free in Christ, man. I can do whatever I want. I'll go out and do what I want. I don't care what anybody thinks. I was talking to a missionary recently who were in Europe. They were in a little village, small area. And... uh, The women there did not shave their legs. That was just... And that's true in a lot of places in the world, but this particular place, they didn't do it. Only one kind of woman shaved her legs, and that was a prostitute. That was the custom. And well, when the missionary ladies arrived with their legs shaved, it caused a lot of problems. Because the people did not understand that. And they had to relinquish their liberty at that point because they didn't want to be offensive. Because of the identification. Now, that's principle number one. You're abusing your liberty when you're needlessly harming someone else when you could relinquish it. Principle two. The second way you abuse your liberty is by doing things that could disqualify you from service. In other words, when you run your liberty out to its limits and you're playing on the thin edge I think of the little boy who climbed in the bunk bed one night in the middle of the night. It was a tremendous crash, and he fell out and hit the floor with a thud, and his father came running in, and he was crying on the floor. And he says, well, what happened? How did you ever do that? He says, I think I fell asleep too close to where I got in. (laughs) You know, I think there's a lot of Christians who fall asleep too close to where they got in. And they're always flirting on the borderline. They got their liberty. They're running their liberty right out to the sheer edge. Paul says there are two dangers in the abuse of liberty. One, that you would offend somebody else. Two, that you would get yourself in a position to be tempted, to fall into sin and get disqualified from service. These two things make up chapter 9 and chapter 10 of First Corinthians. The first point of offending another is in chapter 9. The second point of getting yourself in trouble is in chapter 10. And he uses in chapter 10 verses 1 to 13 an illustration of Israel to make his point. Israel fell asleep too close to where they got in and got in a lot of trouble. This is a powerful illustration. It kind of comes out of verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9. Notice it. Paul says in 24, we're all in a race. We can potentially receive the prize, so run to win. Now, what is the prize? To win people to Christ, to be a soul winner, to be somebody who is used of God to win people to Christ. And he says if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be, verse 25, temperate or self-controlled. So he says, that's the way I run in verse 26, and I keep my body and bring it into subjection unless I myself should become disqualified. Now Paul says, look, the Christian life is like a race. We're all Christians, we're in the race, but some of us could get disqualified. doesn't mean you lose your salvation. No, no. It means you could be disqualified out of usefulness. He's talking about service, winning people to Christ, reaching people. And he says, in order for me to really reach people, I have to bring my body into subjection. I have to be under self-control. I can't just let my body do whatever it wants. I've got to be careful about my liberties. I've got to be careful about what I allow for myself, or I'll run myself right out into the, the sheer edge. I'll get tempted, and off I'll go and be disqualified and set out of service. And with that concept he moves into verses 1 to 13 of chapter 10 and he says this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. Because of a failure to limit their liberty, because of a failure to really deal with their bodies, to really exercise self-control, they lost out. 2 million of them, according to John Davis, 2 million of them probably is the number that died in the wilderness. With their corpses strewn all over the wilderness. And we went into verses 1 to 5 last time in detail, the assets of liberty. And it just describes this nation, Israel, elected by God as a witnessing community to receive, to preserve, to pass on His revelation, and to prepare the way for Messiah. They were freed, he says in verse 1, guided under the cloud and through the sea, identified with Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They were sustained by God and sustained in water, according to verse 4. They were freed, guided, identified, sustained as a witnessing community under the leadership of God's man, Moses. And the parallel is obvious, people. The Christian is God's called-out witnessing community, freed, guided, sustained, and union with Christ, who is the head and leader. And so he's making a comparison. Israel was in a race. The prize was to be a witnessing community that could reach the world. But two million of them failed. Two million of them had their carcasses strewn all over the wilderness and God had to start with a new generation because they were disqualified. Why were they disqualified? Because they abused their liberty? Because they pushed their freedom too far and they didn't put any restraints on it? They just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until finally they fell. And that brings us to today. Let's look at the abuses of liberty from verses 6 to 10 they assets of liberty and listed in the first five verses, and how did they abuse it? Look at verse 6. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. This whole passage is written as an example. Verse 11 says the same thing. It says all these things happened unto them for examples. Now, Israel is an example of somebody who has freedom. They've been freed. They've been identified with God. They're sustained and guided in the wilderness, and the misuse of their freedom re- results in their disqualification. Perfect illustration of his second, second way to abuse liberty, by falling into temptation and sin because you're not careful. Now, what, were, what was going on? Well, the whole overall thing is simply in verse 6, they lusted after evil things. Now, you're, you can do two things with your body. Verse 27 of chapter 9, you can bring your body under control, or verse 6 of chapter 10, you can just let your body go wild and lust. If you bring your body under control, you're useful to God. If you bring your flesh under control, you're useful to God. If you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, if you're controlled by God, you're useful. If you're lusting after things and your body is in control and calling the shots, you are useless. If you are under control, you are qualified. If you are out of control, you are disqualified from usefulness. Now, specifically, what were the sins that Israel was committing? What ways... Did uh, the flesh manifest itself? All right, here we go. Number one in verse seven, idolatry. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he's going to make reference to a whole group of Old Testament incidents with wandering Israel. First of all, don't be idolaters. Now, Israel was idolatrous. And this really hits the issue at Corinth because the Corinthians were living in a very potentially devastating society. As I told you several weeks ago, the Corinthian society was totally overwrought with demons, manifesting themselves behind these different idols. And idolatry was a part of everything. I mean everything. There couldn't be any kind of public occasion or anything else that wasn't connected with idols. That was their entire society. Just multiple gods, And everything they did, practically, within the social framework of the Corinthian society had idols in it. And so the mature Christians, the Corinthian Christians, you know, who were the smug, confident ones who had been around a while, they were saying this, hey, look, we're in this society, we're mature, we've been well taught, Apostle Paul's taught us, we've studied under him for 18 months. We know our way around. Look, we've got to be a part of our society. We can go to the festivals, the social occasions, the ceremonies, and uh, we can attend the celebrations of our society. We can get involved in all of those things, and we really don't have to fear because we're so confident, we're so mature that that stuff just doesn't really bother us. And if we have to eat idol meat, meat offered to idols, that's really no problem. We're able to resist the temptation. And, and even if there is an orgy there, why, we'll just sit in a corner and discuss theology. We're, we're not going to really uh, get involved, and we're, we'll, we'll be strong enough to handle it. And so everywhere these mature, smug, confident Corinthians went, they were exposing themselves to the whole gamut of idolatry that was around them and trying to stay separated. But could they? Look at Israel. Paul said, look at them. Hardly out of Egypt. And out in the desert, there weren't even any idols around. But the first opportunity they had, the first time their leader was gone, they reverted back to Egyptian idolatry. And here were the Corinthians, not like Israel in the wilderness, but living in the middle of idolatry. And if the Corinthians continually exposed themselves to idolatry, they were constantly being a part of it. Believe me, it would creep right in. Look at the morality of our day. The morality of the church has changed dramatically. And the reason it's changed so dramatically is because we have been slowly brainwashed. Like 50 years ago, the morality of Christianity was much tighter, much more rigid, much much more confined to the Scripture. And now, little by little, the morality even of, quote, Christianity begins to dissipate. And the reason is because we are in a society that is destroying all morality, that is wiping out all morality, and consequently we find ourselves buying the bag. Just subliminally it approaches our minds, and before we know it, we've got a watered-down morality. And some of the things we would do... Some of the places we would go wouldn't even have been conceived of by Christians 50 years ago. The reason is we have slowly been brainwashed by the media. Paul is, in a sense, saying to the Corinthians, you can't set yourself up as somebody who thinks he stands without potentially falling, and especially you'll never be able to just waltz around your whole life with idolatry and not have it affect you. You're going to come up with a syncretism. You're going to come up with a wedding between idolatry and true worship. Now, verse 7, neither be idolaters as were some of them. Note that not all Israel worshipped at the golden calf. Some of them did. It was an individual thing. Again, in dealing with Israel in the wilderness, remember, everything that occurred was an individual thing. And so, in Corinth, the same thing was true. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Some Corinthian Christians were idolatrous. They had already made this wedding of Christianity to idol worship. Verse 11, I've written unto you not to company if any man that is called a brother. Now, he's talking about Christians. Anybody called a brother, or at least called himself a Christian, be a fornicator, sexually evil, a covetous, or an what? Idolater, don't have anything to do with him. But apparently, within the congregation of the Corinthian believers, there were some worshiping idols. You see, by fooling around with that, they couldn't keep separated. It slowly creeps in. It insidiously comes in. You can't continue to expose yourself to that and not have it affect your theology and find a place there. The line gets blurred, folks. It just gets blurred, he said. And idolatry subtly creeps in when freedom is abused by getting too close to the contact. Now look at Exodus 32, and I want to point out what I think to be very fascinating truth. Exodus 32 is the reference that Paul has in mind when he talks about the idolatry of Israel. They were wandering in the wilderness. They'd just passed through the sea and under the cloud, been given provision of God. And out there in the wilderness, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the law. While he's up there, the people had a little idolatry going on, but I think something interesting here I want to point out to you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him up. Get with it, Aaron. Do it. Go. Hop to. Whatever. Moses has been gone for a while. Make us Elohim. That is the Hebrew word for God, and I think it should be capital G, a singular. That's the name of God. Make us God, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. We haven't seen Moses in a long time. We don't know where he is, but uh, since he is not here to represent God, let's make another representation of God. Make us God. God say, John, why do you think that they're talking about God, the true God? How could they possibly do this? Let me show you why. And Aaron said, break off the gold earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Maybe Aaron hoped they wouldn't want to do that, and this was kind of a stupid attempt uh, to stop the process by making them provide the gold themselves, but they were willing. He underestimated their idolatrous desires, perhaps. And the people did break off the gold earrings in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received them at their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool after he made it a melted calf. And that that is an Egyptian deity form. And they said, listen, these are thy God. The representation of Elohim is is what I think that they were making. This is God. God. God is now a golden calf. You say, that's blasphemous. You're absolutely right. But why do you think it should be God instead of God? Look at the next line. Which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Did they know who brought him out of the land of Egypt? Of course they did. Who was it? Jehovah. This was an image to the God who brought him out of Egypt. Jehovah. They had made an idol to Jehovah. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Listen, tomorrow is the feast to Jehovah. They were actually worshiping Jehovah in the form of a golden calf. And they rose up early in the next day and offered, here comes again. These are traditional offerings to Jehovah, a bird offering and a peace offering. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now listen to me, people. This is unbelievable. You know what this is? Again, this is religious syncretism. Israel has taken the worship of the true God and translated it into the form of pagan worship. You see, how did it happen? So many years, when they were engulfed in Egypt, over 400 years, and seeing pagan worship had left such an impression on them that the first time they were without a leader, they reverted back to pagan idolatry and tried to connect the true God with it. And that makes the point, people, you can't expose yourself to idolatry without having it at some point interfere with your theology. That's what Paul is saying. A feast of Jehovah. And and they carried out a typical pagan feast. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to have sex. That's the word play means. It's the same word used in Genesis twenty six when it says uh Isaac was having um conjugal caresses with Rebecca. That's a very mild way to say it. It means you know what it means. That's what they did. They sat down, ate, got drunk, and got up and had sex relationships with everybody in the crowd. An orgy. What a ghastly deal. What a terrible marriage of God to an idol. And they, got, they were naked. Verse 25. Moses saw the people were naked. Moses came down and they were all stark naked, running around having an orgy. Now that could get, that would be something, folks. I don't know how many of the two million were involved, but what a mess. God was not happy, verse 28. Children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and fell that day 3,000 men. They were slain. You say, that's not very many. Yeah, but the whole nation bore the guilt and later on the whole pile of them died. Now you see, those liberated people abused their freedom and they, they fell off because they went to sleep too close to where they got in. They never did let go of, e- of Egypt The Corinthians were doing the same thing. They had become Christians, but they never had let go of the old life, and they wanted to hang on to false gods. And you know what happened to the Corinthians? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 20. Just a little further over in the 10th chapter. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. You know, there may have been somebody around who was arguing that what the Gentiles were doing was maybe to the true God. Paul says, that's ridiculous. They're sacrificing to demons. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of demons. You see what they were doing? Same thing Israel was doing. They go over to the Lord's table, have a time. They're all done at the Lord's table, go over to the table of demons, have a feast in the pagan temple. They were marrying the two again. Same thing Israel was doing. He, he's saying, yeah, you're, you have liberty. You have freedom in Christ. You have your, your right to go and to do those kind of things and to sit there if you want to and to eat that idol meat. But if you do that and you keep doing it, one, you will offend a weaker brother, and two, you'll put yourself in a position to get engulfed in pagan idolatry. You're a lot smarter if you avoid it. Well, Paul warns, Israel was disqualified from usefulness as a witness by idolatry, and you will be too, and he says it to us today. You say, but John, we don't have any idols in our land. How does this apply? Is this irrelevant? Oh, listen, I think we got idols. In our society, we have idols. Let me give you just some illustrations. And I say this as kindly and lovingly as I can, and yet this is what I believe. For example, I believe we have idols today in Romanism. Traditionally, Romanism venerates Mary, worships Mary, Venerates and worships the saints and venerates and worships angels. That's idolatry. And at the same time, I really believe that many Roman Catholics have come to know Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful many priests have. And that's super thrilling. I praise God for that. But I'll tell you something. When you come to know Jesus Christ and stay in that environment, an environment that fosters improper worship and worship of the wrong person and the wrong personality, you can't stay there. You're pushing your liberty to the edge where you're going to have that affect your theology ultimately, and you're going to come up with some kind of a syncretism, some kind of a union. I had a lady... I mentioned something about a few weeks ago, and I got a letter from a dear lady, and she was very conscientious and very concerned and also very angry. And she wrote me about six pages of... Boy, you know, it was just going up and down on the desk, you know. It just really was... And she was saying, why, how can you attack the church of Jesus Christ, and how can you attack... I've never attacked the church of Jesus Christ, believe me. But how can you say that against those that are truly Christians, and she said, I want you to know that I am a Christian, that I am a Roman Catholic, and I am a Christian, but I know the truth. I do not believe in the worship of Mary. I do not believe in the worship of the saints and the veneration of the angels, and I do not believe in the actual sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, and I do not believe this, and I do not believe, and you know, I wrote back and said, you are no Catholic. You are a Christian. Thank God, what are you doing in there? If you stay there long enough, all that stuff is going to stay. The same thing is true in Protestantism. There are people who sit in a Protestant church where they know they're not hearing the truth, and idolatry is to think anything less of God than He is worthy of, right? And people will sit in a church year after year after year in a Protestant church and hear untrue things about God and wonder why they have an emaciated Christian experience. They're going to allow that stuff to infiltrate their true understanding of God and Christ and salvation until finally the whole thing gets confused in the same kind of syncretism that existed in Corinth and existed in Israel. There are other gods in our society. For example, there's the god of fame, of ego, money, education, position, sex, golf, tennis, clothes, cars, and on and on and on and on. And there are plenty of people bound down to those idols. And that becomes a wedded thing and there are people who have their Christianity but they've married it to something else that they worship. Plenty of idols. Ezekiel I think hits the nail on the head in chapter 14 verses 3 and 4 in his indictment of Israel he says, and "Here's the problem. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts." That's the problem. It isn't that you've got a stone god or that you've got a metal idol or a wooden totem pole. They've got idols in their heart. Verse 4, every man of the house of Israel that sets up his idols in his heart. Verse 5, that I may take the house of Israel in their heart, because they are estranged from me through their idols. And that's the thing he's after. They had worshipped things in their hearts. There can be many false things. Anything untrue about God is, is idol worship. Anything other than God, which we worship, is idolatry. And if you don't believe it, but you hang around it long enough, it'll water you down. Israel couldn't even get away from Egypt. The Corinthians couldn't get away from the problem as long as they hung around the idol feasts. And the same thing is true today. As long as you hang around those kind of problems, you're never going to get rid of them. I remember a guy who was a minister, who used to enjoy golf and he said, oh, I love golf. I play golf, et cetera, et cetera, so many times a week. And, uh, I thought, boy, that's a lot. You, you probably shouldn't play that much. You could really get kind of tied down to it. Oh no. And he really enjoyed it and he played it and finally he played it and then he'd gamble a little bit a little bit more a little bit more. And finally he was losing 500, 1,000, 1500, 2,000, 2500, $3,000 on a game, wiped out his whole ministry, went out of the ministry in disgrace. He had an idol. And as long as he courted that idol, there was no way that he would divorce it. He had the freedom to play golf. I have the freedom to play golf. I have the freedom to play golf today. Did you know that? This isn't the Sabbath. I have the freedom to play golf tonight instead of preaching. Do you know that? Because I'm not under the law to do that. I'm not going to do that. You come. I enjoy preaching, but golf disturbs me. But you see, if that thing becomes a God, then I can't divorce the two, and then I'm in trouble. Israel fell. Corinth was falling, and so might we if we have idols. Look at verse 8. Second factor in the fall of Israel, the second thing that led to their disqualification as a witnessing community, having been set aside, verse 8 says, Neither let us commit fornication. As some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. When anybody asks me how God feels about sexual sin, this is what I always think of. People say, well, what, what is God's attitude toward premarital sex or extramarital sex? I always say, well, his attitude is probably best expressed in the fact that there was a group of people who committed extramarital sex and 23,000 of them he killed in one day. Does that give you an idea? That's his attitude. Now, idolatry and sex have always been related. In Numbers 25.1, there's an interesting statement. It says, in relation to Israel, and they were always fooling around with the Moabites, and this was a result of Balaam and his, his activity, but in uh, 25.1, I think it is, of Numbers, the people of Israel began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. First of all, sexual activity, here it comes, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods, and Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor." That's the god Baal associated with Mount Peor, a local deity. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So you have harlotry in verse 1 and idolatry in verse 2. They go together. Sexual immorality and idol worship. In Corinth, the principal temple in the city was the temple to Venus. It was run by prostitutes. And orgies occurred all the time. And the Corinthians are saying, well, we're all right. We'll go up there and enjoy the feast. We don't have to get into the orgy. And uh, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, Israel couldn't divorce themselves from sexual immorality. And in one day, God slew 23,000 of them for it. Interesting footnote here is that in Numbers 25, 9, which describes later on in that same passage I read you, describes what God did to those that committed sexual immorality with Moab. And it says that 24,000 died. Here it says 23,000. You say, is that a contradiction in the Bible? Well, it could, have, it could be a copying error. There are some numerical uh, terms in the Bible that could be copious error, where you have a, a difference in the number, and, uh, which to me goes to prove the fantastic accuracy of Scripture, because the variation is always so minute, and the only variations we can ever find are minuscule things like that. Which is incredible when you think how that book has been passed down through the century. So it could be a copyist error. On the other hand, uh, some say it's round figures, that the, the number was between 23 and 24, one writer took 23, and the other writer took 24, and the truth is in the middle, and the very often the Hebrews spoke in round figures. That's perhaps true. But there's another thought, too, that might be right. He says 24,000 in total died in Numbers 25, 9. Here it says 23,000 fell in one day. There may have been 1,000 who just lived past midnight. <laughs> so maybe both are correct. But
1: 23,000...
4: In one day, in 24,000 total, if you take it that way, were disqualified from being a part of God's witnessing community because of immorality. Now listen, the Corinthians were already into this. They were saying, why, we can attend all these things and do what we want, and you know what happens in chapter 5, one guy's already having sex with his, with his father's wife, and it could have occurred at an idol feast. In chapter 6, verse 18, he says, you better flee from sexual immorality. And the implication is they were already doing it. Don't you know your bodies are the members of Christ? Verse 15, verse 16, don't you know that if you join yourself to a harlot, you drag Christ into that thing? Chapter 11 tells us some of the Corinthians had died because of sin. So flaunting their freedom and and fooling around with idol worship, they had fallen into a syncretistic religion and they also had fallen into sexual evil. And I'll tell you something, people. Say, well, I'm a Christian, I can handle it. I can go here and do that and go here and do that. You know, young people, it's amazing. Young people always think they're in control of everything. Well, you know, I can go out and park and, you know... I can handle it. I'm a Christian. We just get so far, and then we start quoting Bible verses. You know, <laughs> yeah, we got a little program worked out. You know, yeah, sure. Or listen, it's no problem for me. Uh, I can, uh, I can handle the girls in the office. No problem. I can have lunch with them, dinner with them. That didn't bother me a bit. Mm-hmm. Famous last words. Oh yeah, pastor says. Oh, well, counseling women, no problem at all. Oh, not at all. I just heard of a pastor who lost his pulpit. Because there were multiple dozens of women who had had sex relations with him in counseling. I mean, multiple dozens, folks. You can handle it? You better not push your freedom too far. Many Christians today have been rendered useless because they couldn't handle sex. They're out of the race to win people to Christ, shelved. There was a third thing that caused the fall of Israel from a place of usefulness, and that was tempting God. And this is very interesting, verse 9, tempting God. Neither let us put Christ to the test, as some of them also tested Him and were destroyed by snakes. Now, you remember in Numbers 21, that that again covers Israel in the wilderness, from which all of these illustrations here are taken. But Numbers 21, let me read you verse 5, and the people spoke against God, and that's bad. When you do that, as soon as it starts with that, you know we're in a lot of trouble, they started speaking against God and Moses. We say, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What did you bring us here for? Just so we could die? Now listen. For there isn't any bread and there isn't any water. And our, we hate this manna. And the Lord sent fiery snakes among the people and they bit the people and many of them died. The Lord said, I don't like that. I do not like that. You're pushing me too far. We want this, we want this, we want this. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and griping. And God finally said, that's it. They pushed to see how far God would go. How much could they force God to do? We don't like what you're giving us. We want this and we want this and we want that. What would God allow? You know, there are some Christians, if we can just extrapolate out of that, here's the point he's making. There are some Christians who want to push God to the limits all the time. Their whole view of the Christian life is not what can I do to please God, but how far can I go and get away with it? How, how long a rope does God have around me? When do I get the yank? How far can I go? Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. They thought they could play along with the Holy Spirit. String him out. Peter said unto them in Acts five nine, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? look, there goes your husband's feet, and yours are going right after him. Both of them dropped dead. You think you can test the Holy Spirit? How far are you you're going to push God? Satan says, why don't you dive off the pinnacle of the temple? The Scripture says he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone, etc. Jesus said, you shall not what? Tempt the Lord your God. Don't force God to do something. Don't get yourself in a situation and then force God to get you out of it. That's pushing. Don't push God. And here were the Corinthians just, you know, we want the old life. We want the goodies we used to have. Why are we so restricted? It isn't fair. How come we can't have any fun? So they were pushing the edges of their liberty, running as close to the old life as possible and demanding to have what they once enjoyed. They weren't willing to cut off the old life and accept the new life. And the Corinthians were having the same thing. They were saying, yes, we're Christians, but we're going to do everything we used to do, and God will take care of it. Why, this is the age of grace. God is so wonderfully forgiving. And Paul reminds them, you know what happened to Israel when they just pushed God as far as he would go and just took, took his grace as far as it could go? God just took uh, one day at stock, and then he said, I think I'll deliver a little group of snakes down there and bit them, and they died all over the place. Now, Corinthians, that's uh, something for you to think about. Will it be an example? And you know, some of the Corinthians had already died because this they had pushed God too far, coming to the communion table with sin in their lives and going through the communion, and God says, that's pushing me too far. Bang, you're dead. Some of them were sick. Some of them were weak just because they were pushing God too far. This is grace, people, and I thank God for it. And I'm glad I'm in the age of grace, but let's remember that there is a place at which God doesn't get pushed any further. Fourth, and the last thing that he mentions in terms of the, the evil things that brought about the... Demise of Israel, quickly. Complaining. Oh, you say, how did that get in there with all those horrible things? Verse 10, neither murmur, as some of them murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. You say, who's the destroyer? That is the destroying judgment angel, the same one that slew the firstborn in Egypt, the one that was ready to slay the people in Jerusalem in David's time in 2 Samuel 24, the one involved in the destruction of the Assyrians in Second Chronicles 32, the death angel, if you will. You know, God slew people with the death angel for griping Oh, no. (laughs) Hallelujah for the age of grace. Well, I'm with you. You say, what does this mean? What does this translate to? The Corinthians. Well, Lord, we don't like to live a restricted life. We don't like to not be able to do what we want to do. We don't like to be satisfied. We don't like to have this blah. Listen, people, for us, this is what it says. Murmuring is a failure to be satisfied with God's will for your life. you get that? Failure to be satisfied with God's will for your life. Don't do that. There are a whole lot of carcasses strewn all over the the desert, the carcasses of people who weren't satisfied with God's choices for them. God had them there; He wanted them there. Discontent. Paul says, "I have learned one thing, Philippians 4:10. In whatsoever state I am, what therewith to be content." Christians today are guilty of complaining. That's dangerous. Well, why does God, why do I have to be here? Why can't I be doing that? Well, how come he gets off? Why did I have to be married to her? Why did God do this? I wanted to be a missionary, or I wanted to be, why am I over here punching the clock? I never seem to be able to get ahead in life. Why is it that my bills are never paid? Now you start griping and murmuring about the things that God has chosen for your life, and you're murmuring, and that's problematic. The Old Testament folks, they were fairly afraid to do that, you see. You know, there, there was a little rebellion in Numbers 16, and that's what he has in mind here. And Korah and Dathan, Moses says, come, I want to talk to you. And they said, forget it. We're not interested in talking to you, you phony. All you do is lead us out in the wilderness so you can play prince, so you could be a big hero. You got what you wanted, and the rest of us are going to die out here. And he says, I don't like your rebellion. And God says, I don't either. I'll take care of it. And God slew 14,700 of them, and 250 of them. He opened a hole in the ground, and it swallowed them up. Number 16, and the rest of the people said, it is not good to murmur. (laughs) And you know, for the most part, the Old Testament people from time to time had to be taught that lesson. And I say to you, it is not good to murmur. So Paul warns the Corinthians that a lack of self-denial, a lack of self-control in their privileges is going to lead to abuse. And they will fall into idolatry, into sex, into pushing God too far, into complaining and griping because they think God is always so gracious and forgiving and they start bellyaching about their lot in life and they start complaining all the time and ultimately they will be tempted, they will fall into sin and they will be rendered disqualified for the service of God. Listen to me, people. The continual Fooling around with things that are questionable reveals a lack of self-control and is a potential for disqualification. You flirt with the old lifestyle, you test God to see how far His patience goes, you complain about His choices for this life, there's going to be rebellion and disqualification is potential. Look at verse 11 and we'll close. Now all these things happen unto them. For example that are written for our instruction or admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. That is, we're the last generation. We're the last dispensation. And everything that happened to them is to teach us so that we don't fall into the same trap that they did and wind up disqualified. God help us to be useful to Him as a witness in community because we enjoy our liberty to its limits with two things in mind. You don't abuse it by offending someone else. You don't abuse it by living so close to where you got in that you fall. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our study this morning. Practical, straightforward. Thank you for how the Holy Spirit applies it to every life. I want to say thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of these precious people and how thrilling it is to me and how I marvel at it week after week that they come so faithfully and in anticipation and excitement to expose themselves to the Holy Spirit and the truth of God. Father, that says something something exciting. It says there's something real here. There's something genuine in these people. They want to know your truth, and they want to be exposed by it, and they want to deal with the sin in their lives, and they want to grapple with it, and they want to be what you want them to be, and I thank you for that. And I pray that you'll bring into our prayer room those who need us to help them in the struggle, those who need us to show them how they can know you, how they can have peace and forgiveness.
3: Amen. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
2: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T R U T H B E T O L D R A D I O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is to the restraint for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
5: What gives us value? This is Ken Ham, and children 10 and under are free this year at our family-friendly Ark Encounter. This week we're in a series on the development of an unborn baby and today we're looking at an 11 week old baby. By this stage the baby is moving around and fingernail beds, tooth buds and a tongue are forming. It's around this stage that many women will opt for certain screenings. These screenings tell the parents if the baby is at risk for a variety of chromosomal abnormalities. Now, sadly, based on these often very inaccurate tests, many parents will choose to end their baby's life because he or she just might have a disability. But every life has value, and that isn't determined by our level of ability. It's given to us by God who formed us.
6: Discover more about what God's Word says about the value of life at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you visit us on our website at AnswersRadio.com.
0: I
5: It's the same baby. This is Ken Ham, and we've produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. This week, we're in a series on the development of an unborn baby, and we're halfway to birth at 20 weeks. Baby is now six and a half inches long, and mom's feeling her child move around. Now, by this time, babies in many states are at least partially protected by law from abortion. Many people don't like the idea of killing a baby that kicks and looks like a tiny version of a full-term baby. But abortion at any stage is killing a human being. The baby at fertilization is the same baby at 20 weeks. Nothing has changed but the level of development. So just like we don't let parents kill their toddlers, all babies should be protected right from fertilization.
6: Yes, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Find answers to defend this truth at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com. <laughs>
5: Does viability matter? This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing the truths of God's word with the world. We're nearly finished with our series on the development of an unborn baby. And today we hit an important milestone, 27 weeks, or the age of viability. Although babies have survived when born earlier, at this stage, most preemies will survive with significant help. Because of that, some people think abortion should be illegal at this stage. But a human life doesn't begin when that life can survive independently. Think about it. Would you be able to survive on your own if you were thrust into an unknown environment like the desert or the Arctic? The ability to survive on our own doesn't determine personhood. Abortion is wrong at this stage and any other.
6: There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged with truth from God's Word about the sanctity of life when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
0: All I want to do is praise your name From the rising of the sun to the going
1: down of the same You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name
5: One Pound Wonder. This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Tomorrow, we'll wrap up our series on the development of an unborn baby through birth. But before we get there, consider the baby's pre-birth lifeline, the placenta. This is the baby's first organ, and it functions as the lungs, kidneys, liver, digestive tract, and immune system up until birth. The placenta begins to form at just five days of life and it's not part of the mother's body. How can it even implant without the mother's immune system attacking the baby is still a mystery. But this truth completely defeats the my body, my choice argument. The baby is not an extension of the mother's body. He or she is distinct and must be protected by the amazing placenta.
6: Plan your visit to the Creation Museum to see our striking pro-life exhibit. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Children 10 and under are free this year. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
0: I love to
1: tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell. Jesus and his love.
5: evolution do this? This is Ken Ham, head of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis and The Ark Encounter. Yesterday we learned about the placenta, a baby's lifeline until birth, but after birth it's not needed anymore so it detaches from the uterus, but that leaves a massive open wound. One pint of blood per minute drains from the mother's now open arteries. And within minutes, all her blood is gone. Wait, that's not what happens. God designed the arteries in the uterus with precisely placed muscles that seal off when the placenta detaches. Instead of losing all her blood, the mother loses less than a pint. And this is just one example of how precise childbirth must be so both mom and baby survive. Childbirth didn't evolve, God created this.
6: Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Children 10 and under are free, so bring the family. Go to AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com.
1: the end. It's
0: Most
7: evil, awful, destructive, malevolent, hateful, harmful, and dangerous books of all time that have affected your life? Glad you asked. These are our choices in order by date, mostly. Number 10, The Prince. And I'm not talking about the 1999 guy. Machiavelli wrote The Prince in 1532. It was a charmer. It made diabolical deeds look downright noble. When it comes to politics, the ends justifies the means. Machiavelli, he began the popularization of pragmatism, utilitarianism, and the justification of evil, not to mention it gave birth to a really lousy perfume. Whatever. While this book might be the most read book in the Clinton household, the Bible never endorses pragmatism. If the means are sinful, then don't do it. Number nine, besides writing the world's first narcissistic autobiography, Jean-Jacques Rousseau penned the atrocious Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality of Men. Boing, not pithy. In 1754, he proposes the idea that personal private property is the source of all social inequality. Sound familiar? Let's remember, the idea of private property is... Biblical. That's why we're told to not covet. And that leads us to number eight, the winner of the 1848 Nightmare of the Year book award, Engels and Marx Communist Manifesto. Everything about this stinker is anti-biblical. Marx is anti-private property. God isn't. Marx believed the way to make the world a better place was through violence God disagrees. Marx classified humanity into two camps, the hoity-toity bourgeoisie and the lowly proletariat, or as we know them today, the oppressor and the oppressed. God classifies people as either born again or not. We can thank the Communist Manifesto for helping topple Western civilization, not to mention causing the death of tens of millions of people. And as long as we're talking about books with horrific consequences, that leads us to number seven, not one but two terrible books from Charles Darwin. In 1859, he of course wrote The Origin of Species, 1871, The Descent of Man. Here's just one quote that reveals the racist nature of Darwin and his works. At some future period, not very distant, as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. Who are they? At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state than the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as at present between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. Nice. The impact of Darwin can be seen in great 20th century accomplishments like, you know, World War II, eugenics movement in America, and forced sterilizations. It's a beaut, not to mention... Darwin changed our view of humanity to nothing more than advanced monkeys and ultimately just walking bags of meat. No wonder so many kids are depressed these days. And as long as we're talking about the subject of eugenics, that brings us to number six, Mein Kampf. The delightful tome written by the man with the mustache persuaded fellow citizens that some people are just plain better than others. He was a big fan of Charles Darwin, by the way. His book sat on his nightstand. Millions of people would disagree about inequality of races, and so would the Bible. God ascribes equal dignity and value simply by virtue of being an image bearer, not based on ethnicity or skin color. And that brings us to another awful racist book. Number five. The Pivot of Civilization, probably haven't heard of that one, by the founder of Planned Parenthood herself, Margaret Sanger. It's Darwinism applied to human life and procreation. The consequences, just 60 million people being destroyed in the wombs of their mothers, eugenics, sterilization, and don't forget racism. Why racism? Don't forget Planned Parenthood was originally called The Negro Project. Number four, The Future of an Illusion by cigar-smoking Sigmund Freud, 1927. The not-so-good doctor viewed religion, Christianity specifically, as the source of everyone's problem. (laughs) Helped usher in our autonomous, self-driven, psychologized society. The Bible would take issue with Dr. Freud and remind him what is as obvious as the well-coiffed beard on his face. God isn't the problem. We are. But speaking of sexual twists, number three, the Kinsey Reports, 1948, a heap of totally unscientific, completely manipulated data that sought to normalize every form of aberrant and abhorrent sexual behavior, you can thank Alfred for paving the way to normalizing pedophilia. He gave it a big thumbs up. Nice work, Al. God is furious at those who hurt children. Number two, 1963's The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. We can thank Betty for second-wave feminism that focused on separating the procreative act from the procreative consequences, a.k.a. abortion. Without Betty, we wouldn't have third-wave feminism, which seeks to separate women from their gender, if such a thing were possible. if Betty had read the Bible, her views would not have been so radical and downright sinful— God is a big fan of complementary rules among the two and, dare I say, only two genders. And that brings us to the number one most awfulest book of all time. That's right, awfulest. All other religious holy books besides the Bible. Why? Because they portray themselves as divine revelation, and they're not. If and you want to know the truth about all of life and godliness, trash these ten horrible, hideous, evil, downright dangerous books and read your Bible.
8: in the Book of Revelation. and different shades all fearfully and wonderfully made through each the glory of God displayed. God
2: made me and you.
8: For all of our you, all are lost, all have greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. God made
9: me and
8: you. Different colors and different shades all fearfully and wonderfully made through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. So all of value, all are lost. All of great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. God made me and you.
10: Weird, the only thing we don't call a trigger is the one that actually has a trigger. <laughs> Bill Maher,
7: on occasion, like a blind knife that finds a squirrel in the drawer twice a day, had some words for his compatriots, which is probably a good, good descriptor these days, his
10: compatriots in Hollywood regarding guns. And finally, new rule, now that we live in an age of uber corporate responsibility where every large company in America bends over backwards to get on the politically correct side of every issue, Hollywood has to tell us, why doesn't that include gun violence? When liberals scream, do something, after a mass shooting, why aren't we also dealing with the fact that the average American kid sees 200,000 acts of violence on screens before the age of 18, and that, according to the FBI, one of the warning signs of a potential school shooter is a fascination with violence-filled entertainment? Did
7: I mention this is Bill Maher? You're hearing concerned that Hollywood is making impressions on children and it is leading to bad acts. You know, uh, wow, there are some days I'd actually like to be on the Bill Maher show sitting next to him to say, hey, Bill, I think you're right about the gun connection, that people see violence, some, not all, some are going to emulate it, some are going to find a thrill, some are going to think that it's okay, some are going to have their moral compass." So off kilter, it actually makes sense to them to go shoot up a bunch of people in a public place, including public grade schools. But let's extend that. Hollywood has other images that they portray a lot. How's about all of the hookups that are seen in today's Hollywood productions? Do you think that might be having an influence on the kids too Bill, but he probably wouldn't object
10: to that. It's funny. Hollywood is the wokest place on earth in every other area of social responsibility. They have intimacy coordinators on set to chaperone sex scenes. They hire sensitivity readers to go through and edit scripts. Disney stood up to the don't say gay law. Another studio spent $10 million to digitally remove Kevin Spacey from a movie. But when it comes to the unbridled romanticization of gun violence, cricket. Weird, the only thing we don't call a trigger is the one that actually has a trigger. Hmm.
7: Bill Maher, concerned about Hollywood's portrayal
10: of guns. What world are we living in these days? If you make a movie today, you can't show bullying, fat shaming, shaming, girl chasing, gay baiting, ethnic stereotypes, or underage hookups where drinking is involved.
7: Well, once again, I would have to ask, though, what about those portrayals of young kids drinking, bad behavior, drug use? Why aren't we concerned about
10: that, too, Mr. Marr? But those things are bad, and everyone knows you can't platform bad things. You know what? You can still platform one guy who's the hero getting over a grudge by mowing down a multitude of human beings. Because no impressionable young male would ever imitate that. Which would lead
7: us to another subject, and that might be who our young men do emulate. Data from the United States Census Bureau shows that nearly 18.5 million children grow up without their fathers. Huh. Could that be a connection to gun violence and bad behavior when they don't have a pop? Who is teaching them how to actually use these arms and to not abuse them by shooting up a schoolroom? The United States owns the title of the world's leader in fatherlessness. Hey, you think the economy is bad? Wait till you see what this does to our nation. <laughs> this is what takes it down. Bill Maher is right. Impressionable young men. And who is teaching them? Social media media. Hollywood, from this particular article, from economic, it's Fox News, from economic prosperity, increased academic performance to improved social mobility, fathers in their respective homes continue to be a key indicator of success for all children across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. Please note this statistic, 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from Fatherless homes. Seventy percent of adolescents, patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from homes without fathers. So you're right, Bill. They are impressionable. Who's making the impression? Now, the usual
10: suspects on the far left will say that I'm delivering some sort of conservative rant here or that I'm undermining gun control.
7: No, because you're not going nearly far enough.
10: So don't worry. No hugs from us. No, it's neither. It's just what's real. There's a pie chart of why mass shootings happen, and we don't know exactly how much of each of the pieces is responsible, but the major ones are...
0: Mm, He's going to miss
10: them, but you probably guessed that. Mental health. That is, broken young men who feel like losers and want the world to hurt like they do. Easy access to guns. Kids having smartphones, which makes losers feel even worse of the bullying and all the fake lives that look better than theirs. And yes, yes, crazy amounts of gun violence in movies and TV. So close. <laughs> and no fathers.
7: <laughs> and no belief in God. And diminished church attendance. Don't know if you saw the Gallup poll, but we have shrunk. In 1944, when Gallup first asked the nation, do you believe in God, 98% said yes. Today it's 81 Hey, that's going to make a difference, isn't it? So while I thank Bill Maher for his astute observation about gun violence in Hollywood playing itself out on the streets, it doesn't go nearly far enough because it would ultimately raise a question. What in the world can we do to avoid this type of atrocious behavior? And they don't want to hear that answer because it involves Jesus. Hey, I'm Todd. I'm going to be your Uber driver. What's your destination? Uh,
3: 2054 Campbell, No, 1. no,
7: no, no, no. Your eternal destination.
8: My ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies All of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross With Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of this great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Ever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was
11: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change the Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change
0: That's
2: how I got first you. Uh, join us next time Sunday at 2 p.m. 4 p.m. m third time And This is going to go out With your team friends in the V I V L E And Bye for now the